I'd love for you to define the word urban, which you use in many contexts throughout the book, to refer to students, schools, and communities. So can you help us unpack this word? Because it's often used synonymously with terms like inner city and non-white. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you actually brought that up to sort of open up the conversation. Um, and in the book, or in the title of the book, I don't even use the word urban. I talk about, you know, for white folks who teach in the hood. And so the hood, in many ways, is what has been described as urban and sort of used interchangeably with inner city. And I use the, the hood, I use that term and expression purposely, because when folks say urban, they actually mean the hood or inner city. And so urban becomes a way through which they can describe schools that have very particular characteristics. So schools where the population is low income, you know, where youth, of course, socioeconomically disadvantaged as a result of being low income, uh, communities that have high incarceration rates, low graduation rates, where students are traditionally underperforming based on uh, particular forms of assessments. So urban, outside of the context of schooling, oftentimes refers to city. So in New York City, for example, urban could be 42nd Street. It could be Chelsea. Uh, it could be a places where a lot of wealth has accumulated. But when you say inner city or when you say the hood, it means gloss over the places where there is money, gloss over the places where there are high concentrations of people who are uh, socioeconomically advantaged or who may have the opportunity to be able to have private education and go right to those communities that are not doing well, that folks are scared to go to, they are mostly populated by uh, urban youth of color, um, black and brown people. And so, you know, I, I was very sort of deliberate by not saying for white folks to teach in urban spaces and the rest of y'all too. Uh, naming a place as the hood because there are certain perceptions that come to mind when you say words like the hood. And, and in many ways that is, quote, unquote, inner city as well. So you also note that urban students are more disengaged in science than other subjects. To help reverse this That's trend, true. you created Science Genius Battles, which is an initiative that uses hip-hop and rap to engage urban students in science classrooms. But why are these students disengaged, and does it point to larger problems in STEM education? Oh, absolutely. I think STEM education is, as we all know, it's been sort of written across the national landscape, or you know, is, is a initiative nationally and even globally that we need more young people who are engaged in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And it's just pure fact that youth in urban spaces are underperforming in these disciplines, and that's indicated by uh, their low achievement rates on on exams. Um, but also just in, like, school test scores and also in the percentage of folks of color who end up majoring and getting degrees in, in STEM. Um, so it is reflective of an issue in STEM uh, and simply because, look, if, if, the, if the reality is that certain populations are underperforming in a discipline, then it means then that they're being underprepared for that discipline or they feel like if they can't do well in those disciplines. And if you trace that back down, it oftentimes happens in K-12 education. So in K-12 STEM education, um, science in particular is viewed as being only for the best and brightest, in quotes, for those who have the sort of resilience to be able to overcome challenging academic subjects. And so we are attaching a perception uh, that only particular populations can do well. And then there's a general sort of writ large consensus that urban youth of color, particularly those who have certain forms of expression to self, are not part of the best and brightest. So when you, when you put those two things together, there's a perception that certain populations just can't do well in those disciplines, 
And it oftentimes becomes a, sort of a Rosenthal effect kind of phenomenon because if you don't believe somebody can do well in a certain discipline and you treat them as though they are not part of the best and brightest, then they will not choose those disciplines. And so that's why I did Science Genius, essentially to open up to young people um, the fact that by virtue of being a part of particular communities or particular forms of expression, um, that they can actually be scientific. So when a young person who listens to hip-hop daily or who can write a rhyme, who can perform a rhyme, who can memorize a rap album in, you know, in three or four hours, starts realizing that they can actually be scientific using hip-hop, then you start changing the perceptions that they may have about themselves in relation to disciplines like STEM. So when I have a young person who can write a rap about, you know, complex physics through hip-hop, they start seeing themselves as a physicist. Now, once that sort of, like, sense of self around STEM has been developed, um, then, then they can learn because now they're willing to learn, right? So you've knocked out the, the, the fundamental barrier, and I believe this is the fundamental barrier in, in STEM or in schooling writ large, just the perception that you can do it, just the perception that it's a part of who you are. So if we can address just the, the psychological dimensions, and we can open up the space where people will, will, are willing to do the hard work or, or, or willing to activate the resilience they already have around these STEM disciplines. Uh, so, so that was the impetus for STEM education, and yes, it is reflective of the fact that STEM education or education writ large does not meet the needs of particular populations. You describe the traditional school structure as an authoritarian system that required you to conform to white standards in order to succeed academically. You also emphasize the role of this structure in reinforcing fear-based narratives where teachers view urban students, usually referring to black and Latino students, as violent or angry. Where does the responsibility for changing this underlying structure lie? Well, the responsibility, the responsibility for changing the structures of schooling lies with everyone who is a stakeholder in education. So everyone from parents to teachers to school board members to the U.S. Department of Education, I mean, we, to professors of education, to teacher education programs, we are all collectively responsible for uh, the existing structures of, of schooling. Uh, particularly the traditional structures of urban schooling or, or, or folks who teach in the hood. Um, so now, so, so that way we've identified that we're all responsible. I, I think it's important for me to say that we're all responsible because what oftentimes happens is that people from, from particular vantage points will place blame on everybody else for why the structure is broken without realizing that we are all complicit in maintaining a structure that is fundamentally flawed. So once we can get to the point where we are all collectively responsible, then the answer becomes how do we change this? Well, we change this. Um, by, by, by changing ourselves, um, by critiquing the structures, by admitting that the very structures that we, and when I say we, professors of education, teachers, school board members, the same schooling that we have found some success in is oftentimes not a reflection of the effectiveness of the school structure, but rather our, our collective resilience, right? So every person can go back and say, man, I hated that subject. I hated that school. I hated that teacher, especially if you come from urban America, Right? So if we can all identify the fact that we did not have a good time in, in school spaces, why are we ensuring that the next generation also has a bad time? You know, it's like, you know, part of this is, 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 a, is a piece of identifying, you know, what the feeling is like in schools. If the, if the feeling isn't good and we're all doing the same thing and not feeling well doing it, then we need to do something different. Um, and this is not just about, about students, although students are where my heart is. It's also about teachers. Listen, Teachers have to be able to go into schools and feel comfortable there. They have to be able to go into schools and feel joy. I want teachers to be able to feel success every day rather than feel dysfunction and feel that their hands are tied behind their back and that they're, they're unsuccessful. So this idea is we all must change the structures to allow those who are invested in the process of schooling 
to approach that work with a certain sense of joy, a certain sense of satisfaction, a certain sense of purpose, a certain sense of, of comfort um, in, 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 in the teaching and learning process. And so we have to shift the structure as it exists to ensure that we all have joy in the teaching and learning experience, like the joy of learning, the joy of teaching. Um, that has to be the fundamental purpose of schooling. Once we all feel good in that space, once we all feel like we can do well in this space, once, once ourselves are affirmed, when we feel confident, when we feel like we understand each other's cultures, then we can get rigorous. But if we try to implant rigor onto flawed systems, um, it's just going to lead to dysfunction. Also, in one section of the book, you note the aesthetic similarities between a Detroit school and a neighboring correctional facility. To counteract the feeling of imprisonment that urban youth may feel in school, you suggest that teachers decorate their classroom with quotes and with artwork as well. Um, in a recent classroom Q&A blog post with Larry Falazzo on Education Week Teacher, you also noted that this wasn't done often enough, that it was one of the most underfocused upon dimensions of urban teaching and learning. So why is the classroom environment so overlooked, and how can educators apply those same principles to other spaces in the school? Listen, the classroom environment is overlooked because we have educators who are so deeply sort of like connected to this notion that academic rigor or academic success for young people only requires a hyper-focus on, uh, on, on testing. Uh, I mean, that's a fundamental piece. I, I can't tell you how many schools I've gone into where there's a critique of the, of the teacher, you know, maybe it's because the students are disengaged or the class looks bleak and awful or, 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 or the place feels like a prison. And I say, why don't you try this? And they say, God damn, then I have no time to do this because I have to make sure that we pass the timeline test at the end of the year or I'm being assessed by XYZ, XYZ rubric and I have to make sure I meet that rubric. Or if my principal comes in and I'm not doing, you know, I'm not teaching page, page 54, section 3, line 2 at, at minute 13 of my class period, then I'm going to be reprimanded. So we've created structures that teachers have to abide by that doesn't make them have the space to be able to focus on the aesthetic dimensions of the classroom. And yes, like I said in the book, and yes, like I said in the blog post, it is one of the most simple yet under-focused upon dimensions of changing schooling. Um, and so, yes, I went to a school and I went into a, into a, into a, uh, a correctional facility and it looked the same. The walls were bare. The, the bars on windows, and beyond that, you know, the teachers were acting like wardens or teaching like wardens. They were yelling at students. They were, they were, they were so deeply involved in zero tolerance policies and 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 don't smile till November and all these foolish things that they inherited from the schooling that they received. And you know, the the, the key to transforming schooling, like I said before, requires the young people to feel as though they are learners to feel as though they are, they are welcome, to feel as though this place is about learning and learning is a fun activity. So, listen, if you walk into a classroom that light is shining through the windows and music is playing in the backdrop and the walls are decorated with art that reflects your community art and you see pictures of yourself and you have quotes from your favorite rappers and, and inspiring quotes all around the wall and you're not just sitting in rigid chairs but the chairs have cushions in them that make you feel comfortable and, 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 and it's and it feels good, then it makes you want to learn, right? And, and beyond that, when I walk into a place that feels good, I feel like as if that space, the classroom space, is an escape from the harsh realities of my everyday, right? So there are messages that we send to young people simply by how the environment of our classrooms look 
And if our classrooms look like prisons, students feel incarcerated. If students feel incarcerated, they don't feel free enough to learn. If you treat somebody like a, like a, like a, like a, like a prisoner and you make them feel like a prisoner, they're going to respond by giving you prisoner behavior, prisoner attitude. And if you treat them like they're valued and you treat them like they're artistic, loving, learning beings, then they will respond in kind. We cannot blame young people for giving us responses to oppressive structures that are negative when we are the ones who are creating the structures that invokes that response. If you treat somebody like a prisoner, they won't act like a prison inmate. If you treat somebody like they're brilliant, they will express brilliance. If you treat somebody like they are free and, and, and excited, about, like, excited about learning, like because you're excited about learning about them, then they feel like they have value and they're excited about learning. And um, I, you know, I really make the argument that if we spent enough time focusing on these things that seem insignificant within a larger spectrum of hyper-testing and hyper-rigidity and zero tolerance, we will have different responses from young people. Early in the book, you talk about the trauma that some urban students face, both in their communities and in the simple act of going to school. So in addition to teachers practicing reality pedagogy, how can school counselors and administrators, the whole school community, in fact, work to reduce these traumatic experiences in order to better serve urban students? I think that's a brilliant question. And, and just to you know, be clear, I actually work with folks who are school counselors. Uh, so I have uh, doctoral students who work in a health education program at Teachers College at Columbia University, and we're addressing this very thing. Um, and, 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 you know, when we talk about trauma, uh, the thing is that we cannot identify the trauma somebody's experiencing unless we, A, bear witness to that trauma, meaning we see it ourselves, or, B, we create the spaces to allow them to feel comfortable enough to let go of that trauma. And so the ways that we address it, you know, I was sort of addressing my previous question. We wanted to create the context or the space in the classroom where you feel comfortable um, and feel like they have somebody to trust in that school then they're willing to, to sort of share um, what's on their mind and what's on their hearts. Um, and a, a project I'm working on now in New York City schools with one of my doctoral students, Ian Levy, we actually have classes that are recording studios. Uh, we know that one of the chief ways that young people of color express their frustrations is through their music, is through hip-hop music. Um, so just like I use hip-hop for them to be able to connect to science, we actually have classes in schools where you have a recording studio that doesn't cost that much money where students can go into the studio and actually record songs based on their emotional trauma, based on their experiences every day. If, people, if young people can let go of that trauma through the creation of tracks and then discuss those tracks and those songs with their peers so they can find collective uh, mechanisms for being able to address the things that hurt them every day and collectively heal, if we, if we value that in the school, then by the time they go to their actual classrooms, there's space enough for them to learn because they've let go of the trauma. Um, I oftentimes, when I give speeches, talk about the fact that if students can't let go of what's holding them back, you can never give them content. And so a classroom studio helps them be able to let go. A classroom space that feels comfortable makes them be able to let go. And then also viewing those who have, who have the responsibility to focus on counseling and school social workers, privileging that. You know, in an era where we're so hyper-focused on reading and math skills, we don't invest enough on the social-emotional spaces for young people which means investing in school counselors. You know, I was in a school the other day in, uh, in Arizona, and, and they were telling me the statistics of school counselors to students. It was like 812 to 1. How can you say you value young people when you only invest in testing them and you don't invest in their, in, in, in their uh, emotional, social-emotional well-being? Um, so, 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge issue. Again, it's one of those things that I, that I talked about throughout the book where I don't need a million dollars. I don't need a billion dollars. I don't need a $5 million grant. I just need people who are fully invested in young people and are willing to take on new tools for teaching and learning, and that will transform schools. Is there anything that you would like to add that I didn't ask about? Um, yes, uh, one thing. I, I by no means um, write this book or share these tools or come up with reality pedagogy with a goal of saying it's Emden's way or the highway. You know, it, what I am providing for teachers are simply tools to allow them to be able to develop the pedagogical strategies that they need. Um, if you take the C's, which are the chapters in the book, and, and you just pull out of those chapters one kind of tool that you can use in your classroom, the students that you have in a class will develop for you what pedagogical strategy you need to help them be better. Um, and, and so this work is in many ways just a labor of love. Um, I, I do it not to make teachers uncomfortable. I do it not to, you know, because I know sometimes folks get put off by, you know, the title is being for white folks teaching the hood. Oh, he's going to make white folks feel bad. No, it's called white folks teaching the hood because white folks overpopulate uh, the pop, uh, teaching and learning as teachers. There's just more white teachers in urban spaces than ever before, and oftentimes they come from backgrounds that don't reflect the backgrounds of students. So those folks need as much help as possible. That's why it's named that. But the book is also named for the rest of y'all too. This is for black teachers who oftentimes take on the structures of traditional schooling and are just as ineffective. So the work is about providing tools to make you do better at your craft and to do right by young people. And, um, and, and, I, and I feel like if we all took this shift uh, towards a more practical way to improve teaching and learning, um, we can do better by young people. And, and that's what my goal is.